I'm Liam Printer, and this is The Motivated Classroom. Hello, bonjour, folcha, bienvenidos. Hello and welcome to everyone to the Motivated Classroom podcast. Thank you so much, Gurmila Mahagav, for joining me today on this episode to do with questions and answers. So we've got a Q&A coming up today, which follows up on our last three episodes, which were really all about teaching with a more social justice lens and making sure that we use our positionality, that we use our privilege, that we use our place in the school to try and make sure that we are instilling values of acceptance, love, humanity, care for others. That was what those last three episodes were all about. Today we're getting a bit more focused back into the actual mechanics of the teaching of languages and language acquisition with some of the questions that have come in today. But of course it is the Motivated Classroom podcast so we always need to start with our little bit of Irish and today it is a phrase that I've come across since I've started reading in Irish again. So I recently brought a new baby daughter into the world. Well I say I, I mean I carried her out of the hospital but it was certainly my partner who did all of the work. So uh, we have a new baby daughter, which is very, very exciting times. And I am reading to her in Irish at night, even though she's only a few weeks old. She doesn't seem to be enjoying it too much at the moment. I get about two pages in and she starts crying. So (laughs) I don't know, is that to do with the Irish or is it just to do with she doesn't like being read to yet? But we will see. It's a little bit of an experiment. I will not be speaking to her in Irish during the day because really I'll be speaking to her in English 90% of the time. And honestly, if I'm really honest, my Irish is probably not fluent enough to be able to completely speak to her all the time. I have a good level, but of course I haven't spoken it in, you know, 15, 20 years since I've been in Ireland. So it's obviously quite rusty, but reading it to her at night is now bringing back so much of it to me, which is which is lovely. So I suppose the goal is really that she will recognise Irish, that she'll know that there's an, a language out there that exists that's called Irish, that's part of her heritage, her culture, that when we go to Ireland, she'll recognise the word on signs and on menus and wherever it's written in the country and when she hears it she'll recognise this is the thing that dad reads to me at night but you know I'm obviously going to be translating into English for her especially as she gets older so that she understands what the words mean on the page so we'll see how it goes a bit of an experiment let's see if if that develops a love for Irish culture or the language or if maybe she she realises through these inputs later that she understands more than she thinks we shall see but that phrase that I've come across from reading is a phrase which is Bula bus. Bula bus more or bula bus means a round of applause. And so I remember hearing it lots of the times in school, you know, the teacher would say, okay, bula bus more, you know, give a big round of applause. So it's, it's a lovely little phrase, I think. Bula bus. There we go. So without further ado, I'd like to get straight into some of these questions. There were so many questions that came in this week through email, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Now, sadly, there's just no way I'm going to get to all of these. So I've tried to put them in a bit of priority to the ones that really ones that came in first, but also ones that I don't think I felt I've talked about that much on the podcast up until now. And of course, please, as you're listening to this, do take it with a pinch of salt. I am just one teacher in one school, in one place, teaching in a certain way. There's many, many other people out there with many different opinions on how to do all this stuff. This is just my take on it. I've done a doctorate in motivation. I've been teaching languages for a long time, but it's absolutely not to say that I have all the answers. Please go and search out other answers, listen to other people, get different 
perspectives and come to what feels best for you and your context. But I hope that the answers I give you will hopefully help you to think about it a little bit more, read into a bit more. But it's just my take on it and and the research I've read around it. So, yeah, I always like to kind of put that out there, just a bit of a bit of context or a little bit of an asterisk to say, you know, I'm not trying to say that what I am saying to you right now is the only way to do things. It's absolutely not. There's many other ways to get there. So the first question comes in from Jenny Lucas by email and Jenny asks, should we assess writing in the first year of acquisition or just do kind of formative tasks like timed writes at the end of a story or kind of open writing, formative writing where we give very little feedback? And if not, well, then when should grammatical accuracy begin to take a role in assessment? So this is a great question. And I think when you're asking Jenny about year one of writing, you're typically probably thinking about students who are beginning, say, secondary school or high school, maybe age 11, 12, 13, who are starting to learn French or German or Spanish or one of these second or third languages in an Anglophone context. I'm I'm guessing that's where you're coming from, that we're not talking about kids who are age four or five or who are learning them as an add-on or in a bilingual setting. So I'm going to go down that route. So Basically, for me, students begin Spanish or German in the school I teach in when they're age about 11 or 12. So they've already got English usually quite, you know, solid at this stage. We are an English speaking school and many of them will also have French. Not all of them, but many will, either from being in the local system or because they have learned French from moving here or they've been here for a couple of years. So that's typically my setting. On most schools in the UK and in the US, it might be that they are starting Spanish or German or French. They're typically the ones that are taught most or Italian or maybe it's Japanese in the Australian context. And I'm sure it's different languages around the world, depending on where you are. Now, those languages probably do also come in around this age. It's usually as they enter into secondary school. So we'll go with thinking of that. So for me, when it comes to writing, I typically don't correct very much at all of their writing and I do not concentrate at all on accuracy in that even first couple of years. But of course, when I am doing summative assessments, so in the system I work in, we have to give them grades at the end of the year. So I need to have some kind of evidence and grades to show, well, if we mark them here in a scale of one to eight, that's the middle years programme for the International Baccalaureate, one to eight. So eight being the best and one being the lowest or the worst. And so, you know, if I give a student a six or a five on their writing, well, of course, I need some evidence to back that up. So typically how I would do it is like this. We would do lots and lots of writing tasks throughout the year. And most of them, if not nearly all, are very formative in nature in that there's very little correcting of grammatical accuracy. That is to build confidence and competence within them. Of course, there are times when I will give them feedback on particular errors that are recurring. So, for example, right now we are in our third unit of the year, my beginners class. So the students who started Spanish in August. So we're in April now. So we're talking about six, seven months of Spanish. Up until now, they've done one or two assessments that were summative in nature in which they got a grade. I'm talking about the writing here and in where, you know, I was marking some of their grammatical accuracy. But the important point is, is that I'm not marking every mistake. Now, I've shared pieces of students writing on my Twitter before, and I'll do it again, actually, to show you that when you read it, you will read it as as a very proficient speaker or a native speaker or someone with an advanced level. You will see many errors and I'm not correcting all of them. 
because I'm trying to make sure I build their confidence and the research would show us that if we fill the page with all of the errors, it does little or absolutely nothing for their progression. In fact, it makes them regress because they think that they are just not able to do it. So rather than correct every single error on the page, I typically will pick out one or two of the biggest errors. So for example, if we're all the way through to this stage of the year, for me, one of the basic sentences that I want them to kind of know by now is me gusta, which means I like. So if they are writing yo gusto, which is quite common as an error, I will correct that mistake because it's something we've done many, many, many times. If, for example, however, though, they are using uh, L instead of la, like a masculine or feminine somewhere, I'm not going to bother correcting that because it's just not that important right now. I would prefer to give them two or three bits of feedback specifically on certain things and that they can see that that is why they got a five instead of a six. So typically it works something like this. In this unit, for example, we've done a story, we've done some building of characters, we've read a little novel. And as part of this, they might do a formative writing text, which for us this time was was there was a couple of times they were writing little reflections on pieces they'd read. And what I would do is I would read those little reflections quite quickly, but I might just pick out one word in that reflection that there's an error there. For example, in the student saying yo tiene, which means I, he has, instead of saying yo tengo, which means I have. Again, something we've practiced over and over and over again. They've heard it many times. I would be hoping we could kind of master that by now. So therefore, I will correct that. I'm walking around and I'll see these reflections they've written as maybe a paragraph or maybe I've looked at them in the evening time at night and I'll see and I'll maybe correct that one thing. I'll just say, yeah, very nice use of connectors. However, remember, tengo is I have, tiene means he has. There's my feedback on their five or six things of writing, five or six lines, even though there may be many other errors there. That's a bit of formative feedback. Then they wrote an email uh, as practice for their summative writing. So we, as I say, have to grade them by number. That's part of the system I work within and we have to do a certain amount of assessments per year. So one of them is writing an email. So as a formative task, students each wrote a very basic email around the book that we had read in class and they were writing it from their own perspective or they were writing it from the perspective of one of the characters in the novel. And then I will give them feedback on that writing. And typically I give it like this. As I say, I'll correct maybe two or three errors on the page. That's it. So we're talking about a page of 200, 300 words and I will write two or three errors on that page, particularly ones that are repeated over and over again. And then at the end, I give them two medals and one mission. So the medals are things they've done well. Something like really nice use of the word tambien and also the word uh, word después, which means after and also in Spanish. Then I might say lovely format, very clear and nice use of paragraphs. And then my mission might be Remember that we want to say tengo for I have, but tiene means he or she has. And they will then write out their corrections and they'll write out that little mission as well for for more repetition. So it's being really focused and targeted on specific feedback. And this is a true story. When we did the summative assignment that followed that up, I've literally just given them back the grades maybe two or three days ago. And I give them back their grades and the summative remarking looks very, very similar to the formative. Just because it's a summative task where I'm giving them a grade, it doesn't mean I'm going to correct every single error. Absolutely not. I'll correct the biggest ones and then I go around to each person one by one as they are doing their corrections. So they get their 
test back from me. They're writing their corrections out uh, in silence as I walk around and give 15, 20 second feedback to each student. So I'll quickly open it up, look at my comment and go, yeah. So the reason you got a five here is because you really didn't have many connecting words at all. There were straight sentences and you mixed up me gusta and tiene quite a few times. And that is the reason it was quite difficult for me to understand. And that is why it was a five. To get a six, really you need more connecting words and we need accuracy with me gusta. That I like. Then I go to the next student. And that's all said in Spanish in a way that they can understand. Now, I was going to, I was saying true story because this really happened. As they were getting their feedback, I was walking around and one of the students I overheard, this is a 12 year old, you know, first year of learning Spanish, saying like, wow, like, looks, you know, I, I heard there's hardly anything to correct here. This is great. I only made a couple of mistakes. You know, sometimes when I get things back in other classes, they're covered in red marks and I can hardly see my own writing because it's just so many mistakes. I literally overheard that conversation. So that is what they think when they see a page covered in red pain and all the errors. They don't think, oh, great, these are all these things for me to work on. I'm so happy the teacher pointed out every single tiny error on the page. They're absolutely not thinking that. They are thinking, I'm not good enough for this. I can't do it. Look at my partner. She's only got five or six red marks. Mine has 50 marks that I can't do this. But if everyone has a few mistakes, more or less the same on every page, even the top level students, they will have a few errors. But everyone has the same amount of kind of marks on their page, roughly five or six things, let's say, have been corrected. Then they all kind of look the same as their partner, but some errors are, of course, bigger than others. And we go around, I go around and explain that to them builds their confidence, builds their competence, yet they understand why they didn't get the top mark. And, you know, students who I had one or two students who did not do very well at all. You know, they, they, they were only getting, say, like a four, you know, out of eight. And, and for me, that's, you know, of course, these are students that need to be doing more inputs, more reading, more listening. They're not really putting in that time. And so when I sit down beside them and I give them their little bit of feedback, it's a little bit more serious. It's a little bit like, I think you can do much better than this. You know, there's a few errors here that really make the message difficult. I didn't understand this. I didn't understand this. I wasn't sure what word that was that you were writing. So how do you say I have? And then they'll kind of look blankly at me and I might say, remember, it's yo tengo. That was something we used and you need that to communicate here. And me gusta means I like. We need that as well so that they see, OK, my errors were quite big and I need to really work on these. So, Jenny, I hope that helps you a little bit about the way I go about correction and feedback. Now, again, as I say, it's just my take on it. But I've found over the years that the less I correct, the more accuracy I get afterwards. So I used to correct every error on the page, but I just really don't. It's really difficult as a teacher to read errors and just not correct them. But you have to force yourself to just try and read the piece without the pen in your hand first and then go back and find the ones that are the biggest errors to you that really make the message difficult to understand. Because remember, they're trying to communicate and then correct that. But do not correct every single tiny error. There's a lot of research to show us that does not help. It just impacts upon their confidence, their self-efficacy. They don't feel like they can do it. And now you are really impeding one of the basic psychological needs of motivation, which is competence. If that one disappears, you're, you're really on an uphill battle there to try and get them back. So I hope that helps. Now, the next question comes in from another Jenny, actually, but this is on Instagram, Jenny Barrier. I hope I've pronounced that right, Jenny. And she basically asks a question that I'm thinking will be a quicker answer. Does every teacher in your department teach in a similar way to you with CI teaching with stories, for example? And the answer is no, they don't. 
teachers in my department teach in the way that suits their personality, their context, the way that they feel will work for them. But over the years, since I've joined the school, more and more teachers in my department have become more and more interested in teaching with a more CI approach in much more flooding with compelling, interesting inputs. And there's a few teachers in the department who've really gone with that and they're loving it. And we often present in our department meetings little bits of what we call best practice meetings and we'll present little things that we're doing. And as we do this, more and more of the teachers are kind of, you know, listening up and trying new things. As I've said many times in this podcast before, Really, we don't want people to try and change everything immediately, suddenly, quickly. Tomorrow morning, I'm getting rid of all my other things that I've always done, my textbook, my worksheets, and I'm just going to teach with stories and characters. No, please don't do that. Just go bit by bit. Go really, really slowly. Start small. I'm Like Ben Tinsley talked about this in his podcast episode recently. Start small. That's really important. And then, you know, you can build on that unit by unit, bit by bit. You can start to build on it. And that's what we're seeing happen in our department here. Teachers are taking bits that they think would work for them and they're using them. And then they're growing that a little bit to suit their own style. So really, it, it, that's what it comes down to. And, and that's how it works. But there are more and more teachers using it in our department now because they see that it really instills confidence in students. They're speaking more fluently. They're listening. They're understanding everything. They're enjoying the lessons. They're happy. They're engaged. And so, of course, they're thinking, OK, I'm going to try out some of these strategies, too. And so that's that's the nice part. They're really open to trying these things out. So the next two questions are are very linked, so I'm going to put them together. So the first one comes from Ashley on Instagram and she asks, how much English do you use when students don't understand the target language, which she says for her is Spanish? And then Sophie Lockwood on Twitter, very similar question. She says, as a French specialist, I'm scared to overwhelm beginners. And as a non-specialist Spanish teacher, I feel my subject knowledge doesn't allow me the use of a lot of target language. So both of these questions are about target language and use of English. So first of all, I would say go and listen to episode 72, I think it is, about the use of target language, which I address many of these questions. But I will go into it a little bit just because some of these questions are specific. The first one, how much English do you use? Now, That question I could answer by saying very, very little across my classes, very little, hardly ever do I use English in my classroom, maybe when I'm translating sentence to sentence, but it's very rare. But the second part of the question from Ashley is how much English do you use when students don't understand the Spanish? So if they're not understanding the Spanish, for me, that is on me to now change the way I am giving them the inputs so they understand. There's a way I can do that. I can use gestures, facial expressions, pictures, or I can quite simply translate into English, which is the common language of my school. So that is typically what I will do. So, for example, we were just talking about a song that we were doing in class and I could see that I was talking about the song and its rhythm and I could see some of the students not really getting it. And then, of course, I kind of rewound and then I said, do you know what I mean when I'm talking about rhythm and tone and the beat of the music? And they were kind of like, mm, no. And then I had to translate it and I said the beat of the music and then I'm back into Spanish again. They're like, oh, OK. So that's typically how I use it. But it's on me to make sure that I am speaking slowly enough. I'm not trying to do too much That's a really big issue that we have in classrooms. We try and teach way too much, way too quickly, way too many words. And actually, there's an upcoming episode quite soon with Dr. Gianfranco Conti, and he mentions this, that we actually do too much. We're just trying to teach too much content and too many things all at once, trying to get them to master lots of difficult things too quickly. 
So slow it down. Don't try and teach as much. But what you need to do is make sure it's 100% understandable. Talk slowly, gestures, really overact what you're saying, making sure they're understand and keep checking for understanding. Go to a student and say, can you translate that for me? Can you translate that into English? What did I just say in English? Get them to say it and translate it if it's a difficult sentence. Ask them, is that clear? You know, what's the task? So we recently did a, a table quiz in my Spanish class. It worked really, really well. So we've been doing this little competition called Marso de Musica. And I know there's a French version, Mani Musical, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's what it's called. Brilliant. Loads of songs, loads of culture, songs from all over the world. And, and we got to the grand final of this with two songs right at the end. And what I decided to do was I had some pieces written up um, basically from Wikipedia that are just kind of some facts about the songs and the singers. And I got them on four slides. I said, tomorrow we're going to have a table quiz on this. And so it was up to them how much they wanted to look over the information or not. They were in teams of four and then we had a table quiz. All in Spanish, all in the target language. So it was questions like, which singer in the final was born in January 1979? Now, of course, some of the students were kind of concentrating hard and I could see in their faces they didn't understand 1979. So then I would say it again, slower. And then if I had to, I would write the year on the board. So instead of just translating it, but the entire quiz was done in the target language in groups of four. They were helping each other out, making sure they understood, writing the answers. And it was brilliant. It was great. You know, we had a certain amount of points for certain things, brought, built this up together. And then the second round, there was double the points, third round, double, triple the points. I would pause the songs and see could they write the next word or having listened to them, things like that. And it worked really well, but it was entirely in the target language. They were listening intently really intently because it was a table quiz and they had to understand the question but I didn't really translate at all I would just really break down the question say it's slower two or three times or maybe write the number on the board to try and help them with it so I hope that helps for that Ashley and Sophie for you on Twitter yeah as a French specialist and you say that you don't want to overwhelm beginners like really what you need to think about there Sophie is just making sure everyone is understanding everything and you can ask them about this at the end of the class just say hold up your hands between one and five fingers how much you're understanding when I speak five being 100% and one being really bad really low like 20% and see how many fingers they hold up. And if most of them are only holding up one or two, then it's on you really, Sophie, to really change the way you're speaking. Speak slower, more clearly, repeat, use gestures, use actions, write things, draw things on the board so they're understanding them. That that would be my answer to that. So you, it's really on you to not overwhelm them and not give them too many things. Remember, we don't acquire languages through long lists of vocabulary. We acquire languages through interesting, compelling inputs, through you telling stories and anecdotes and silly things that happened and using images. That's how we're going to acquire naturally the language. And then your second part as a non-specialist Spanish teacher that your subject knowledge isn't high enough to use a lot of target language. I love your honesty there, Sophie. There's so many teachers who are in that boat and you're so right. And really, I go back to Ben Tinsley and what he said in his episode about learning to teach with more you know, centering black and brown voices in our classroom and where do you get started? Well, you have to educate yourself. And it's the same with your target language. You have to really try and bring that Spanish up and make it better. So read in Spanish every day, have like the BBC or whatever CNN world apps in Spanish and just read a story every morning in Spanish, look up a couple of the words, watch a Spanish series at the weekend, try and go to a country and speak it. 
this will improve your level and you will then feel more and more and more confident using the target language in class. So try and work on that. Try and be in contact with Spanish as much as you can to try and raise that level because when your subject knowledge is higher, you feel much more confident giving comprehensible inputs in class. And and that would be a really big message to to all of us teachers listening to this who are non-native speakers of the language. Well, actually to native speakers too. Native speakers to slow down and make sure that you are really speaking in a way that is understandable and comprehensible and check in with your students that they are understanding. Ask them how much they're understanding of what you say. Because as native speakers, things that are easy for us are difficult for a learner. And I notice this completely when I'm teaching English. And of course, for the non-native speakers, work on your own subject knowledge. Use, there's so many apps out there. I'm constantly telling my students, leer es poder, reading is power. And it goes for us as teachers too. Have news apps or have story apps on your phone and read in Spanish or French or German or Mandarin or Polish, whatever you're teaching, every day. Read it every single day for five or ten minutes. Take out a couple of words and watch something at the weekend, every weekend. Just one hour downtime, but watch something on Netflix or YouTube. So you're getting in contact with the language, growing your subject knowledge, and then you'll be more confident with your use of target language. So I hope that helped. There we go. I can't believe I only I only ever get to like three questions. You know, my partner's always telling me I talk too much and she's right. I mean, podcast is the perfect outlet for someone like me. Anyway, the final question or there's one or two other questions I had listed down here. And one of them in particular is from Haley Waldo on Instagram about favourite activities to do with readers. Now, Haley, I'm going to hold that one back because there's a few episodes about readers already. If you go back to around episode 20, 25 with Adriana Ramirez, then there's an episode coming up with Margarita Perez Garcia when she's talking about using novels and readers with beginner students. So I'm going to hold back my answers there because both Adriana and Margarita are much more expert than me in this area, that is for sure. So a huge thank you to everyone. And I really, really want to say a massive Guramila Mahagav thank you to the patrons of the podcast on patreon.com. I really appreciate it. The fact that you are supporting me with a coffee or a bag of crisps every month is so kind, especially now with a little baby in the house. The coffee has become even more vital. So if you feel like you would buy me a coffee or buy me a drink or get me a bag of crisps or a cake or something once a month, if you bumped into me for these weekly episodes, then please go ahead and become a patron on patreon.com or you can also do a once off and buy a coffee on buymeacoffee.com too. If not, and you don't want to do that, or you're not in the financial position to do that, no problem at all. Keep listening for free. Keep sharing. That is the goal that we get this out to more and more teachers so we can get to more and more students' ears. Now, of course, this is the Motivated Classroom Podcast. So we have to, of course, finish with our little bit of Irish. And today that expression was bula bus, meaning round of applause. Or you might hear bula bus more, which is a big round of applause. So again, thank you so much to everybody for listening. Next week, we will be talking about retention in our language programs, not retention of language, retention of students in our programs. How do we make sure that they keep picking our subject, Spanish, German, French, Mandarin, whatever you are teaching, Japanese, that language. We need to make sure they select it and not the other subjects. So how do we do that? So with that, Guramila Mahagav, August Slonawalya. The Motivated Classroom podcast is an original production by Liam Printer. I'm at Liam Printer on Twitter and my YouTube channel is Liam Printer The Motivated Classroom. Full podcast notes with links to resources are available on my website, liamprinter.com. For more, find and follow The Motivated Classroom podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Graphics and music are provided by Paul Mahan. 
intro clips are thanks to the wonderful multilingual staff at the International School of Lausanne.